We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. I listened to the fantasy channel because I uh, play, you know, fantasy football, and they kept talking about daily, you know. And then I was, uh, you know, losing my behind. You know, I had a terrible fantasy year, so I said, shit. I'm not going to try this daily thing. But, so I didn't win that in the first two weeks. As a matter of fact, I was getting my behind kicked. But the third week, I won 20000 I came in second place in the $5 lineup. Matter of fact, that next week, I mean, I was hot. You know, the third week, I won twenty grand, And the next week, I won ten grand. But I would have won sixty grand. I ain't going to never forget it. That's when Peyton Manning, he did not hand the ball off to that running back. He was at the goal line. He did a pass. That six points cost me sixty grand. So if I see Peyton Manning this day, if you hear a black man smack somebody in the face, you know that's me because it cost me sixty grand. You are listening to Fantasyland, the podcast that covers everything you didn't know you wanted to know about fantasy sports. I'm your host, Peter Overzet. And in this episode, we are going to cover maybe the most exciting thing to happen to fantasy sports in a long time, which is the emergence of daily fantasy tournaments, or GPPs, where you literally have a chance to win life-changing money. If you aren't familiar, GPP is short for a guaranteed prize pool. These are the contests responsible for the DFS commercials with those massive cardboard checks and the champagne being sprayed around at the Playboy Mansion. Yeah, you know the ones. But GPPs can also be really intimidating. You have to beat thousands of other contestants, so it's easy to go long stretches where all you're doing is losing. So if you've ever entered a big tournament like DraftKings Millionaire Maker and then quickly lost $25 and got discouraged, well, this episode is for you. 
and we're going to talk to some of the best DFS players in the world who will tell you what you're doing wrong and how you can change your thinking to get better at these contests. And we're also going to hear from Willie Walls, who you heard at the top of the show, because he's proof positive that you don't have to be a DFS pro to have continued success in these contests. Walls had never even heard of DFS two years ago, but since then, he's won over $400,000 in a number of different contests. The first thing you need to figure out before you enter a GPP is whether your brain is really wired to put together lineups that can score 250 points and beat out thousands of other entries. Take a listen to Peter Jennings of Fantasy Labs. He goes by the username CSURAM88 and is known as one of the top players in the world. One thing that I always tell people when they first get into DFS is kind of identify what type of player are you? Are you thinking about you know, what's the optimal lineup this week? Which guys make the most sense regardless of how owned they're going to be? Or are you kind of an outside the box thinker? And certainly some people are wired to think outside the box and uh, make tournament lineups. And some people are wired to make cash game teams. So figure out what makes sense for you and where you get the most fulfillment and, and go after those games. To illustrate the outside the box thinking Jennings is talking about here, consider the case of Marcus Wheaton. And I can hear you groaning already if you play any kind of fantasy. But last year from week 6 to 10, he averaged about 10 yards per game. Not fantasy points per game, yards per game. In other words, he sucked. And you would never play Wheaton in your home league after a stretch like that because if he puts up another zero, you'll lose your matchup. There's just no way you can trust him. But in week 12 last year, Wheaton exploded for 38 fantasy points against Seattle while sporting a minimum DFS salary. So if you're the type of person who could look at that matchup and not be too scared off to make a seemingly crazy play by starting Wheaton, then GPPs could be your thing. Al Zeidenfeld, who sometimes goes by Al Smizzle, is a DraftKings analyst and an ESPN DFS contributor. He told us that getting out of your comfort zone is an important first step to approaching GPPs. Getting out of your comfort zone is a great way to get yourself to reach heights that you couldn't otherwise, right? In any situation. Uh, In GPPs, it's no different. There's something to be said for the ability to let yourself get off of a play that feels like a, a nice warm blanket. In talking to the guests for this episode, it became clear that approaching GPPs is almost like a balance of art and science. There's the science part, you know, where the data on how to make high upside lineups has exploded over the past few years. And then there's also the art to lineup building, where you can take liberties and get creative and make plays that the data might not necessarily support. No GPP strategy has generated more data-driven articles than stacking, which is just the idea that you should pair NFL teammates together because if one player has a big day, then that player's teammate is also much more likely to have a great day. Here's Jennings again. My general strategy uh, is employing stacks, something that I'm very bullish on. Obviously, there's a lot of data support that that's a really powerful strategy. You know, I do a lot of correlation plays. And then one thing that I also try to implement quite a bit is uh, stacking games and hoping for a perfect game flow scenario for both teams. So that's generally my strategy. Um, I build around kind of my same core 
of guys in terms of value plays. And then occasionally I'll make leverage moves as well. Uh, and then I'll just mix in quite a few stacks. And that's generally been my strategy in the past. Along with the widely used quarterback pass catcher stack, a sneaky one Jennings used last season on DraftKings is a wide receiver who also returns punts and kickoffs paired with his team's defense slash special teams. So take Tyler Lockett, for example. If you pair him with the Seattle D and he returns a punt for a touchdown, not only are you getting the six points from Lockett, but you're also getting six points from the Seattle defense special teams. He also told us about some other under-the-radar stacks he's looking at for 2016. The double dip is great. Uh, Absolutely great. You know, the full team stack has become a big thing as well. We've seen that with Pittsburgh in particular. Uh, One thing that I think will be interesting this year with the Patriots when Tom Brady gets back is the double tight end stack utilizing Brady, Gronk, and Martellus Bennett. Obviously, when Brady throws it to Martellus Bennett, Gronk's not scoring any points, so you're not getting correlation with all three players. But uh, in the event that Brady throws five touchdowns and they all go to those two guys, uh, you could still win a GPP. And I think when you do that, you'll be one of the only people who's rostering both Bennett and Gronkowski. One of the most notorious DFS players over the past few years is the user formerly known as Max Dowry and currently known by his real name, Sahil Sood. Sood is a DFS pro and a co-founder of RotoQL, which offers tools to DFS players. And if you listen to our DFS episode, then you know that Sood faced off against Condia with several million dollars at stake and won enough for Condia to retire from playing NBA DFS. Sood also enters every tournament he can, and he says that some of the more obvious stacks provide an opportunity to go against the crowd. I think people tend to overvalue the wide receiver one. They'll always pair the QB with the wide receiver one, so I think that's something that people could get a little less on. In fact, stacks of all kinds have become such a consensus strategy that you'll need to get extra creative with your pairings to truly have a unique lineup. It's always a challenge to make unique stacks, especially where everything's going right now. In 2012, 2013, 2014, not everyone is employing correlation strategies and GPPs, so you had an advantage just kind of knowing how to leverage that in general. But obviously, the market's gotten a lot more efficient, so you have to do different things. And something that I do is um, I normally try to find a secondary target and do a double stack and smaller GPPs that might be lower owned. Or I'll try to make my team more contrarian in a different way if I'm utilizing a stack that I think is going to be pretty common. One of the reasons stacking has become so popular is because of the data that has been accumulated demonstrating the correlations between positions like running backs and defenses or quarterbacks and receivers. But Zeidenfeld says that people can go overboard in following that data, and they're letting relationships which might have a small correlation discourage them from making good plays. If there's a flaw in the correlation chart, it's that it doesn't highlight the fact that there are outliers. So people will look at the chart and they'll say, okay, well, I I can't do this because the chart says that a wide receiver and a running back from the same team are somewhat mutually exclusive and we can't play both of those on the same roster. However, there are outlying situations like the Falcons last year with Freeman and and Julio Jones where they were both getting enough volume to provide value at the salaries that they were at. And, you know, Le'Veon Bell and Antonio Brown for the last couple of years when they're on the field together, 
you have the ability to play both of these players in the same lineup, but because of the correlation matrix, they don't feel comfortable using the outlier. And in tournaments, you have to be willing to get out of your comfort zone and look for those outliers where they're going to lie. A few of the guests have touched on it already, but one of the biggest parts of GPP strategy is looking for ways to be contrarian. It's important because lots of people are reading and listening to the same information, so there's a pretty strong herd mentality toward the top plays of the week. But when 50% of the entries in a tournament are all on the same running back, they're basically just inviting you to go find an under-the-radar play who still has a really good chance of being on a tournament-winning lineup. Willie Walls says that being contrarian is something that comes naturally to him. I've never been that cash-game guy. I don't, I just, my mind don't think that way. I'm a contrarian guy. I like to take the off-beaten path. I don't like to take the main highway. I like to go on the side roads. Let me give you an example. I, I beat out 23,000 people so when I earned a $3 spot for DraftKings, you know, when I, when, I, when I made it for basketball. You know, you had guys that were there that were spending 60 grand, 70 grand. They, they spent a lot of money to try to get to the finals. Most of the guys made it on the $1,000 line, $1,500 line, you know, when, where the pool was real small. I didn't do that. I won on a $3 lineup. I had to beat out a whole bunch of people. So when I went to the tournament, I knew that I had an advantage. And I take it like the military. You know, you like to be more mobile. So I knew that those guys, they normally play talk. I don't play talk. You know, I play contrarian. So they had three lineups in my one, but I didn't care. Because I said, look, if I could beat out 23,000 people, why can't I beat out 100 people in a, in a live final? So that's the kind of attitude. Matter of fact, I told them who I was going to play, and they didn't believe me. I said, I'm going to play these guys. They're going to be the kid of my, you know, are doing well in this tournament. They said, no, you got They didn't believe me. And I told them what I was going to do. And if it wasn't for Dirk Nowitzki being taken out, except me winning 50 grand being number eight in the world, I would have been number three, and I would have won 300 grand. So what does being contrarian look like in practice? Zeidenfeld told us what he thinks is the optimal time for being contrarian. The best time to be contrarian in NFL is weeks one through four, because we think we know, but we really have no idea. You know, a couple of years ago, you could have made a ton of money in daily fantasy when everybody knew, and rightly so, that the Dallas Cowboys were going to be the worst defense possibly in the history of the NFL. And metrically, if you look at them on a per-play basis, they were awful. However, what we didn't take into account was that they knew this, their coaching staff knew this, and instead they just played keep away every game and gave the ball to DeMarco Murray 10,028 times on the ground that year and hogged the ball for 40 minutes a game, every game, and if you keep your defense off the field, the other team can't exploit them on a per-play basis if they just don't get as many plays to play. Later in the season, we have a much better picture. We know who these teams are, and we know who the defenses are that they're going to be playing against. Weeks one through four, we think we know, but we really don't know as much as we want to. Another way to be contrarian is in the way you allocate your salary. The natural temptation is to spend every single dollar to maximize your points per dollar, but Jennings told us you might actually not want to use it all since that is what everyone else is going to do too. I like to leave one 200 on the table when I'm making tournament lineups uh, just because it will almost guarantee that your lineup is unique. Uh, especially with, you know, defenses and certain positions, just having a lot of guys that are 100, 200 more that people oftentimes want to pivot to. So in that regard, um, it's really easy to spend the full salary for most people. So I do think there's value uh, in a top-heavy tournament and leaving some salary on the table. In cash games or a high buy-in tournament, 
uh, I'm almost always spending all the salary or just leaving 100 on the table. In the lead-up to NFL games each week, certain players will inevitably become cemented as the top options of the week. Whether it's because of injuries or matchups or salary, a consensus will emerge on a group of players who everyone seems to think have the best chance of having a great week. And when this happens, Zeidenfeld says pivoting away from these top plays is often the optimal move. When you start seeing this is the consensus number one guy at running back and this is the consensus number one guy at wide receiver, the easiest way to get off of him is to pivot to another great player in a slightly worse situation. I'm not saying to target a big wide receiver against Sherman, right? But you can probably find somebody who's facing off against a lower third pass defense, even though it's not the absolute best situation. It's not the 32nd pass defense in the league. Maybe it's the 23rd against outside wide receivers. And you can find that player at the same price point, but instead of being 30% owned, that guy is going to be 12% owned. Another thing the majority of players will do is gravitate to not only the consensus top projected point scorers, but also the best values. Take, for instance, a cheap backup running back who inherited a starting role after salaries were released. Jennings says being willing to spend up for a pricier option could land you a great play that is also lower owned. Let's go back to quarterbacks and let's say that Andrew Luck has the best matchup of the week and uh, the highest team total and everyone's going to be playing him. And Cam Newton has a a neutral matchup and Cam Newton's $500 more on DraftKings. So everyone's going to flock to Andrew Luck. Uh, but you could actually pay up and be contrarian by going to Cam Newton. So that's a strategy I think is really powerful, uh, especially in higher dollar buy-ins, um, is paying up to be contrarian. A key reality about the NFL is how unpredictable it is. So each week, the top plays all seem really obvious, but those top plays don't come through as often as you'd think. Smith has a strategy for approaching this problem. Everybody can't be 30 40% owned. So you've got the top three guys on the list at running back, the top three guys on the list at wide receiver. If you cross those guys off, number four, five, and six are still in excellent situations, probably have very good contracts, and you can be contrarian without really digging super deep on your list. You're not going to have the 25 to 35% owned guy, but you're going to have the 7 to 15% owned players who are still in very positive situations against defenses you're able to attack offensively that offensive coordinators are going to go after on a week-to-week basis. So ways to be contrarian without being stupid, obviously you can pivot at the same price point. You can go completely off the reservation and take players at a different price point to pay up where everybody else isn't. Or you can just very simply cross off the top three players at every position and make lineups for GPPs, starting with the fourth best player at each position. You heard Zeidenfeld say the phrase, be contrarian without being stupid, which was a clear takeaway I had from talking with these guys. One way Walls avoids not getting carried away with being contrarian is by not overthinking a great play. Sometimes you go all smart yourself. I mean, if it's a free square, you take the free square. Let me give you an example. I don't know if you remember last year with Todd Gurley. Todd Gurley was severely underpriced last year for two weeks. And the guy was just bringing, he was bringing you back five times at his price point. You just had a play. You took the free square. That's what I mean by that. Don't all smart yourself. Because sometimes if you try to be too contrarian, you know, all you have to do to be contrarian is to have two players that are low owned. The rest of your players will be chalk, but that's how you differentiate your lineup. It don't mean your whole lineup's got to be different. Quite possibly the most important thing to consider when trying to win a GPP is something called ownership percentages. 
which are basically how much each player is going to be rostered by the rest of the tournament field. We used an example earlier of a backup running back who is now starting, and say if half the field is using him in their lineups, then he has a 50% ownership. Chris Gemino is a contributor to Roto Grinders who specializes in GPP ownership percentages. And he explained to us how he views lineup differentiation. I would never put a rule on how I make a lineup other than to say I, I just want the most possible upside with at least a few spots that give me an advantage from an ownership perspective. I'm not looking to make my entire roster low-owned players. And by contrast, I'm not necessarily looking to avoid high-owned players. I just want to make sure that my roster has the elite ceiling that we need to win a tournament and has enough differentiation and enough low ownership that if a certain call goes off or a certain combination goes off, I don't have a lot of friends along for the ride with me. So how does Jamino go about projecting ownership percentages each week? He filled us in on his special sauce. And let me just say, thank God he publishes these projections on Roto Grinders because you and I aren't going to do this every week. So it's going to start with reviewing and gathering a lot of data. I'm going to be you know, scouring the landscape for as much information on players and teams as possible. I'm going to project the macro environment, which includes games, pace, matchups, and get a feel for how I think the week is going to actually go with whatever information is available to me. I'm going to actually do my own player projections and compare those to other people's projections and try to gather a wisdom of the crowd so I can get a sense for, you know, what uh, my projections compared to the industry at large and other, you know, smart people who are out there. I'm going to try to project the ownership once as sort of a dry run and see what I think my opponents are going to do. Then I'm going to start building a lot of lineups. And after I'm done building a bunch of lineups, I'm going to reevaluate how I think about how my opponents will behave and try to come up with an ownership based on you know, the initial process plus the lineup building process, because I don't think there's any better way to get a sense for how people might react than just by figuring out how you'd react yourself. Along with looking at projected ownership percentages, Al Zeidenfeld told us that you can also get a feel for who your tournament opponents are going to play just by staying plugged into who the big fantasy sites are recommending and which players other analysts are talking up on Twitter. I try to consume as much information as I can over the course of the week not really for like, okay, I want to know who to play, but I want to know who everybody else is playing and who everybody else is suggesting to their audience to play. And when you start seeing overlap, you just kind of pick up a little bit of by experience and seeing what's out there and taking the temperature of the room, being able to figure out this guy's going to be approximately, give or take three, four or 5% either direction. He's going to be around this percent owned. One other trick you can use to figure out which players will be highly owned is to pay attention to Twitter on Thursday night after kickoff. People like Evan Silva will usually tweet out the ownership percentages as they become known, and these are usually fairly indicative of what ownership levels will be on Sunday as well. And this can be really useful information for building your lineups. We are going to take a quick break, and when we return, we are going to dive into more GPP strategies, including ways to attack specific positions. 
Before we get into the second half of the show, I want to let you know about our friends over at Roman. Talking about erectile dysfunction isn't easy. Usually we just brush it off or blame it on ourselves by saying something like, I lost my mojo. We have different excuses from time to time. But with Roman, it's really simple and easy to talk about. They have real doctors who can prescribe real medication. It's simple, safe, and totally discreet. With Roman, you can get a free online evaluation and ongoing care for ED, all from the privacy and comfort of your own home. The doctor will work with you for the best treatment plan. If medication is appropriate, Roman will ship it to your door with free two-day shipping. The whole process is straightforward, simple, and discreet, as I mentioned previously. And of course, getting started is simple. Just go to getroman.com slash bluewire and complete an online visit. Erectile dysfunction used to be tough to tackle, but now there's Roman. Go on today and complete that online visit and connect with the doctor and get the best steps to take care of it. Once again, just go to getroman.com forward slash blue wire to get a free online visit today with free two day shipping. That's roman.com slash blue wire. Once again, roman.com slash blue wire. Something we haven't discussed in too much depth is Vegas lines. Nearly every serious DFS player factors in the point spreads when making lineups because they have proven to be very accurate. And the most popular way to use Vegas lines for DFS purposes is to figure out which teams are going to score the most in a given week. You can easily calculate each team's projected points by taking the Vegas total for the game, subtracting the spread, and then dividing by two. The reason we aren't going super in-depth about it, though, is because it's already baked into almost everyone's analysis. That said... Sahil Sood told us there are ways that you can use the groupthink to your advantage, especially when it comes to selecting defenses. Yeah, so I mean, I think you'll see a lot is the totals um, are going to drive a lot of defensive ownership there. I think there's a good opportunity to kind of focus on things that aren't the total there. The Seahawks playing the Jaguars are always going to be, even despite their salary, going to be 40% owned type of thing. So uh, focusing on other metrics beside point total, I think will give you good ideas. Focusing on sack rate, which is uh, something that's actually pretty consistent, um, especially on a QB level. So kind of focusing on those sacks will lead to fumbles, um, interceptions. So kind of focusing on the other metrics besides the Vegas total on defense could lead you to some good plays that aren't just because they have a, the defenses expect to give up a few points. As far as wide receivers for your GPP lineups, Al Zeidenfeld shared with us a few indicators that can point us in the direction of a big game. For wide receivers, I'm looking for guys that are getting some piece at least or an elevated piece of the market share and snap counts. Like I want guys that are trending upward in all of those sorts of situations to try and uncover players that are going to be a little bit less owned than the most popular guys, the Julio Joneses, the Antonio Browns. We know who they are and everybody else knows who they are too. But uncovering that next guy that maybe is trending in the right direction in terms of those things, seeing an elevated snap count over one, two, or three weeks, seeing more of a market share inside the red zone, getting more snaps with the red zone package, or in terms of running backs, guys who are seeing more snaps, guys who are seeing more carries. I want to see guys that are going to be on the field, especially when they're in the red zone, is because that's where you're going to make the most money. That's Touchdowns are obviously going to drive the game. They always have, and they always will in terms of fantasy football. So I want guys that are going to see snaps and opportunities in that part of the field that haven't traditionally been getting them over the course of the season. So if you can uncover that guy before other people can by seeing where the snap counts are trending, by seeing where their market share has trended or is going to be trending, if you can get to that guy first, you're going to have the under 
owned guy in a GPP that has a greater chance of scoring a touchdown that week. In our predictions episode, Dan Gardner and a host of fantasy experts told us about the importance of base rates when it comes to forecasting. But for GPPs, Jamino tells us that we should be more concerned with the more extreme outcomes. I'm not just considering the most likely outcome that could occur with a player, but envisioning the total range of the outcomes, keying on the receivers with very high ceilings. You know, factors that impact this would include game scripts, individual matchups, quarterback play, target quality stats, percentage of workload, and the player's individual athletic skill set. But ultimately, I just want to make sure that I'm not just considering what the most popular opinion is on a player or even what my own projections say. I want to consider the entire range of outcomes when I'm selecting, you know, a player at any position, especially wide receivers, which are very important in DFS. You know, I'm also considering their cost per touch, you know, matching their projected targets, ceilings, and viable game scripts with the player's salary. I want to buy as many critical touches as I can and weight the best kind of activity, you know, such as red zone, goal line, and big play potential accordingly. Because we have years of data on the amount of points it generally takes to win a GPP, Zeidenfeld told us that we can use some basic math to calculate how many points we roughly need to score per dollar we spend. Yeah, I mean, if you think for DraftKings where they've got 50k in salary and you want to get 150 points, you need them to get three times the amount of points per thousand, right? So if you're spending 5k, you need that guy to get you 15 points on his salary. Now, it gets a little bit skewed because there's so much variance in defense that you can't really count on, well, I'm going to get 3x from my defense. Uh, If defense and special teams scores two touchdowns, it's going to completely blow the equation out of the water. So it just kind of gives you a ballpark. So like for the millionaire maker, you're going to have to probably have somewhere around 225 to 250 points to win the thing. Unless the chalk ridiculously goes off, then it's probably going to be a higher number that you're going to have to score that week. But 250 is a great place to shoot for, so you need five times their salary. So if you've got a player that's, let's say, 6K, you need to be able to project that he's going to get somewhere between 25 and 30 points. The problem lies where you've got lower salary guys that can get there a little bit easier, like the 3K to 4K guys, but the guys that are 9K probably aren't going to get you 45 points very often. So you have to be a little bit more forgiving at the high end and maybe a little bit more strict on what multiplier you're using at the low end. Sticking with wide receivers, Jennings says that you also have to factor in which defensive backs they are going to be facing and react accordingly. When a team's going up uh, up against another team that has a great cornerback and you know that that corner is going to shadow the number one option, taking the two receiver or the third pass catcher, which is oftentimes what I do, is a great way to exploit that. And uh, a lot of the sharp people know not to take, you know, someone against, say, Richard Sherman or Patrick Peterson. But I don't think people are looking to the third pass catching option as much as they should in those situations. For running backs, Jamino says the scoring settings on DraftKings and FanDuel require different approaches. On FanDuel, I would be interested in finding running backs who could be in position to score touchdowns or have the role that would lead them to be able to score touchdowns and a defensive matchup that would allow them the capability or the propensity to do that. Jennings says it is a bit different when running backs get a full point per reception. Well, on DraftKings specifically, you're looking for the running back that catches the football. I think that's absolutely critical. And we'll see more and more of that, I believe, in the NFL going forward since it's becoming more and more pass heavy. Uh, running backs are really going to have to be good, you know, short and intermediate route runners. So that's something I'm always trying to take advantage of. Obviously, massive, massive correlation with 
big favorites at home and the defense taking the defense and the running back that's something that people know to do but it's still so powerful that you can still uh gain a big edge with that as well so those are two things that i'm constantly looking for in running backs and obviously the you know the most common obvious strategy but has to be said is finding those backups uh, who are going to get a ton of opportunity that's almost always a great play and even if you know they're going to be heavily owned uh in tournaments they almost always are, are still pretty good plays just because the volume is going to be there of all the positions, Sahil says tight ends might be the trickiest to solve. Tight end is just challenging because you don't really have the depth there, so you're going to overpay for Gronk from a value perspective uh, pretty much every time you play him. But it may make sense because there's just such a such a lack of consistency there. So kind of figuring out what, what you should do there. Tight ends are obviously very touchdown dependent, especially uh, once you get to the lower end. If he catches a touchdown, he'll be a good play. But if he doesn't, he may get three catches for 30 yards. So that one is something that's kind of interesting in terms of you have four or five that could probably gonna get you 15 points. And then you have 25 that's going to probably around 10, 12 points average. So... If you want to have a good GPP lineup, you need everybody to go off. So trying to figure out those diamond in the rough tight ends that put up five catches, 50 yards, and a touchdown for less than 4K on DK or less than 5.5K on FanDuel is always going to be tricky, but it's going to pay off. When you play in a large-scale GPP, the range of experience among players is going to be extreme. If you are new to tournaments, it can be intimidating knowing that you are going up against sharks like Sood and Jennings and Zeidenfeld. Willie told us how he goes about preparing for this challenge. Well, you got to start number one, you got to work hard. Okay, and that's anything. If you're going to be one of the best, you're going to have to outwork people. So I think I work hard. I put in a lot of time. Okay. Number two is, you know, those guys put your pants on just like you do. And that's what I found out when I was in that tournament. I did very well, you know, so I was number eight out of 100. And number three is, and see, this is what a lot of people don't think. They think they know so much. I don't care. Listen, I learned from everybody. I learned from everybody. So I read a lot of different people what other people have to say. I like to gather as much information as possible. Even established pros like Jennings are constantly trying to get better by learning from other pros. The best piece of advice I can always give in Daily Fantasy is uh, the one nice thing is once the contests start uh, and finish, you can look back and you can look through all the best players' lineups and you can kind of reverse engineer their thought process and learn from them. So that's another really, really impactful and powerful thing you can do uh, for tournaments this year. Once you feel like you have a decent understanding of how to build GPP lineups, the next thing you'll need to do is pick out which specific contests you want to play. The lobbies on the DFS sites can be overwhelming at first. Willie Walls attributes a lot of his DFS success to knowing which tournaments to play. And a lot of times this meant not getting in over his head with the more expensive contests. I'm not going to play no thousand dollar tournaments. I'm not going to play all this crap. I ain't going to do that. I'm going, to, I'm going to do it the way I've been doing. They called me the unicorn when I was there. Because like most people was in that live final playing, you know, a thousand dollar tournament, a fifteen hundred dollar tournament. I was there in a three dollar tournament. They said you can't win a three dollar tournament. I said yeah. For most of us, including me, it's much easier to relate to Willie than guys like Sahil and Zeidenfeld and Jennings, who can drop a thousand dollars on a qualifier without even blinking. 
I'd be recycling cans for spare change and submitting GPP lineups from the local library if I were wagering at the clip that those guys do. And another thing that separates the pros from beginners is the amount of lineups they often play in a GPP. Playing one lineup each week definitely has its merits because in theory, you're putting out your strongest plays of the week. But the pros we talked to said that multi-entry can also be a powerful tool. Like I said earlier, in the NFL, the best plays don't come through as often as you'd think. So having multiple paths to being able to take down a GPP can be a great idea. It's a way to not only reduce variance, but also if you do it well, it's going to ensure that you don't go long stretches without ever cashing in a contest. The best part is that you don't have to break the bank to do it. Jennings told us how he would approach multi-entry on a smaller budget. Let's say hypothetically I started with $100 and I just only wanted to play tournaments. My strategy probably would be to play three $3 tournaments or you know two $3 tournaments and four $1 tournaments. Basically play $10 in tournaments for the week. And I would try to get as many entries as I possibly could. I think that's definitely the best way to go about it. And uh, I definitely would still try to stick to some sort of bankroll management uh, so that you can play multiple weeks and give yourself a chance uh, with a lot of different tournament teams. It's no surprise that Willie has had success practicing similar bankroll management and game selection. The biggest hit that I've had that took 170000 was on $5 lineups. You understand what I'm saying? It wasn't a $25 lineup. It was $5 lineups. So what I'm, what I'm trying to tell people is you don't have to play big tournaments to win big money. I won uh, on two $5 lineups. That, that brought me in $170,000. So now that we know it's best for us to play only a small percentage of our bankroll on a given week, Zeidenfeld gave us some recommendations on how to approach building our small portfolio of lineups. And if you're going to have five lineups, I'm going to say make one lineup that you think these are my best plays. This is my best lineup that I'm going to make this week. And then vary from that lineup with each separate iteration, right? So if you're only making five, say, okay, well, this is going to be lineup A. This is where I'm at. Now I'm going to take a couple of players out of this. I'm going to swap them, do like a 2v2 or a 3v3 swap here, right? I'm going to take two players out or three players out and put three different players in here. And then with, with the third lineup, maybe use a different quarterback and uh, wide receiver or pass catcher combination uh, and then work from there, right? As well as making leverage picks. The, the ones where if everybody's going to be on Antonio Brown, then maybe you go with Le'Veon Bell that week. You know, instead of everybody stacking the quarterback and the wide receiver, you go with the running back. And if everybody's going to be on Allen Robinson, the leverage play is probably going to be going to Allen Hearns at about 5 to 10% owned that week, where if Bortles still has the big week and everybody's on Robinson, but the touchdowns just happen to go the other way, one of them is going to win you a GPP and the other one isn't. One of the hardest things for new players to get a handle on is the fact that you're just not going to win every time. I mean, wouldn't it be great if you could just hit a $300,000 win every week? Yeah, that would be awesome, but it's also not realistic. So if you're going to play GPPs, you have to understand the variance going into it. you got to understand that you're going to have times that you're cold, and you just got to stick out those weeks. You know, you're going to have some times when you're not winning out. But then normally, the, you know, that time when you think you're not doing nothing, that's when you get that big hit. But you're going to run cold. It's not, you're not going to always win that way. Sahil told us he likes to lean into that variance by playing a similar core of players in all of his lineups for a given slate. Yes, I mean, I think one thing that I always started with doing was playing very, very similar teams. So as people have known is that when I have a good night, 
I'll pretty much have maybe half of the top 100 on a, a really good night, which may happen a couple times a season. And then there'll be other nights where not even a single team will be even in the top 50%. Another way to prepare yourself for the highs and lows of GPPs is to play cash games. And cash games present their own set of strategic challenges and don't offer the same big prizes as tournaments. But Jennings told us they are a lot less volatile. Part of the allure of playing a lot of cash games like I do is having a lot less variance in your results. You can still have really bad weeks. Uh, you can still have really bad months. But in general, playing cash games reduces the volatility quite a bit. So I still love the tournaments. And I know that there's going to be a lot of losing weeks in a row. But if you can hit a tournament in a big way, it's going to make your whole year. And uh, I've been fortunate to have some big scores. So it's one of those things where you just have to go in and kind of understand the variance that you're embracing and really try not to get emotional about it because that's that's the worst thing that can happen. I've seen it so many times with other players where someone will be losing and then they'll try to chase their losses and get it all back and enter a tournament outside of their bankroll to try to chase those losses. So that's something that I always advise against and certainly is something that you should be aware of because uh, losing is definitely the harder part of bankroll management. You know, the same thing can be said when you're winning, you feel on top of the world, but but, you know, normally people are making a little bit better decisions when they're winning. Hopefully this episode has provided you with enough information to get you on your way to building a GPP winning lineup. In a lot of ways, building an excellent tournament lineup is like perfecting a golf swing. There are just so many variables and things to account for that you can sometimes get in your head about one specific thing, like I got to stack these guys. And then all of a sudden you're forgetting about other important things. And the next thing you know, you're fishing your ball out of a pond or for our purposes, making another deposit. But over time and with lots and lots of practice, it eventually becomes muscle memory. But until then, you have to drill the fundamentals that our guests discussed in this episode. And as for Willie, he might appear to have DFS figured out, but that's not what he's telling himself. See, this is my thing. I act like I, I haven't won a thing. I keep myself hungry. So the way I'm going through the season is that I, I never won anything. It don't mean nothing. You got to prove yourself again. So what, what my goal is going to be is I act like I didn't win no money because, you know, it's like I try to tell my friends, I said, listen, if you have a bad day, just leave it alone. Just leave it alone because what you did yesterday, don't let that affect what you do today. You know, so if I have a bad day, I'll just leave it back there. If I have a good day, I'll leave it back there. Because guess what? I need to get back to that same place again. So even if I win, if I win something, I'm still going to work hard because I need to win more. Because my bottom line is whatever I make this time, you know, I got to get my house in my name. So I got a goal that, you know, I want to pay for my house by the end of the year. That's my goal. You know, if I don't hit the goal, like if I, if I only win 120 grand for football, guess what? That's a heck of a year. People will take that for a whole year. In three months, that's a heck of a year. So, you know, when you shoot for the stars, you know, if you get the moon, you still did well. Next time on Fantasyland. A story about a group of military veterans who started a special fantasy league in 2006 while they were deployed in Iraq. We came home and, you know, Facebook, it kind of kept us up to date with people. But really, this league is what keeps me in touch with anybody I want to talk to. You know, we 
forget that when we come back home, we all have families and we all have separate lives to live. But this league is what keeps bringing us back together. Thank you for listening to Fantasyland, the podcast that covers everything you didn't know you wanted to know about fantasy sports. Special thanks to all of our great guests in this episode, Peter Jennings, Al Zeidenfeld, Sahil Sood, Chris Gimino, and Willie Walls. Also thanks to Dan Bach of Roto Grinders for introducing us to Walls. Be sure to check the show notes and the episode write-up on rotoviz.com slash fantasyland for more information about our guests. If you've missed any of our previous episodes, you can find those on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and Google Play. If you rate and review the show on iTunes, you'll be entered to win a drawing for a free Rotoviz hoodie. We've already given a few of those away and we'll be announcing more winners in the next few weeks via the Rotoviz forums. Also, thanks to our sponsors. Be sure to take advantage of their special offers for Fantasyland listeners. If you'd like to contact us, we are always interested in feedback and would love to also hear any good fantasy stories you may have. You can reach us via email at fantasylandpod at gmail.com or shoot us a message on Twitter, also at fantasylandpod. Our producers are Fantasy Douche, Matthew Friedman, and Patrick Corain. Our production assistants are Ant Kaladayud and Alan Jackman. And I'm your host, Peter Overzet. This episode was brought to you by Rotoviz. Hi, my name is John Solis, and before Rotoviz, I was a fantasy loser. I had been playing for six years, and I had never won anything. In fact, I came in last place with such frequency that my home league commissioner permanently changed my team name to the Washington Generals. So you can imagine I was pretty happy to find Rotoviz. So there's millions of fantasy sites out there, John. What was it that attracted you to Rotoviz? There were two big things that stood out for me. The first was the metrics-based analysis, but the second and even bigger thing were the contrarian viewpoints. I had never read anything like it at that time. So you become a subscriber to Rotoviz. Did things then turn around for you in your leagues? It did. I finally started winning, and while I don't win every time, I win with enough frequency now that I don't lose money playing fantasy football anymore. To gain access to all of the metrics-based content and contrarian opinions John is talking about, simply visit rotoviz.com slash podcast, where you can get a listener's-only 30% discount on a season-long NFL pass.